Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Dan Scheinman on the show. Dan is a full-time angel investor who has been doing this for many years in the likes of companies like Zoom, Sentinel One, and Arista Networks, while also being a public board member for some of them as well. So in this episode, we're going to cover how public boards differ from private ones, what Dan looks for in angel investments, and also lessons from angel investing from day one through IPO. So welcome to the show, Dan. An honor to be here. And I've really been looking forward to this. So thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So let's start with your background. I like to joke that I'm a reformed banker, and I think you <laughs> feel the same about being a lawyer. So how did you end up being the prolific angel investor that you are now and board member and you know, just walk us through your journey? Yeah, thank you so much. And I promise this will not take too long. My wife, when she saw your question, said, is he allocating two hours to that answer? <laughs> no, I can do this concisely. I was a lawyer, not out of 100% passion, but more out of not knowing what to do. And so I accidentally ended up in law school and I did everything I could to kind of fight and rebel against actually becoming a lawyer, uh, including going to China during law school and all sorts of things. And my wife was uh, in business school and my plan had been, I was just going to rely on her, live through her. But she kind of said, no, we're not doing that. We're going to have uh, two workers. So anyway, I went to Cisco. I spent a long time there. I learned I liked the business side much better than I liked the legal side, worrying about opportunity better than worrying about risk. I got the absolute privilege to run Corp Dev at Cisco, where I really fell in love with the startup process and the value creation process. I found at Cisco it was an absolute privilege to be part of the startup process. I tried to do an internal startup at Cisco. And quite frankly, it didn't work, largely because I learned I was not an optimal founder. You know, I had two challenges. One was I wasn't great at figuring out pricing. I never figured out pricing. We built a good product. The team was great. But I couldn't quite figure out how to price. And I didn't understand the magic of pricing early. And also, I found selling as part of a big company very hard. Because when I walked in, everyone saw me as a marketing source of dollars for them. You know, in the end, I'd stayed too long at Cisco and I decided it was time to go do something. I spent about, I would say, two weeks on my couch waiting for calls to come in. And the only person who kept calling is my mother asking if I had a job yet. So I realized that search strategy, probably not good. So I went and talked to the venture community and I went and interviewed sort of bumblingly at a few funds. And what I learned was that they kind of felt like, okay, too old and too dumb to be doing this kind of job. And I kept trying to argue old or stupid, but I kept losing the argument, which also said, hmm, maybe I wasn't a good lawyer. I wasn't good at arguing. And so I kind of got my back up and I said, hey, wait a second, I think I can do this myself. And the two core insights I came up with were in order to do this, and my wife went to business school and she was very good about kind of coaching me. And she said, look, you know, if you're going to do this, I don't want you to turn 100K into 200K over seven years and tell me you beat the S&P 500, right? And miss all your kids' activities, everything, right? And so my big things were, one is you have to find outliers in most times. Like, obviously, if we're in a bubble like we were in 2021, different. But most times you've got to find outliers. Outliers are critical. The second thing is that if you find outliers, you need to have conviction, because you're going to have to help them raise, right? That was really what I said about trying to go do. And largely, I figured that if I was too old and stupid, imagine what founders were hearing. Maybe some people were right about the stupid part, but imagine what founders were hearing who had been in companies for too long. 
So I said about going through that because every bit of data said experienced founders in the enterprise do better. When I started, that was basically my core thesis. That's kind of my journey as to how I got here. We glossed over a bit, but I, I think it's pretty interesting. Like, what were you trying to do within Cisco? Like, what was this startup? And, and how do you even, I mean, you were running Corp Dev, so then you just go and say like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing and I'm not going to go acquire any companies or look at partnerships, right? Like, how does that even work? Yeah, two things. One was when I was running Corp Dev, at first I was funny. My jokes were funny. Seven years on, I learned the rooms were getting younger and my jokes were getting stale, right? <laughs> so there was a certain point of time where you just couldn't do it anymore. And my standard line was, how many times was like, I sit in a room with people saying, gee, you guys should go buy Nortel, right? <laughs> and I was like, Nortel's going to go, <laughs> going to fix that problem for us. Just give it time. And I turned out to be right. You reach a point where you're not effective anymore. You don't have any more ideas. And quite frankly, there were very talented people working for me who deserved opportunity. Internally, what I saw was, hey, the world's moved to a database world. And I kept seeing this gap between, you know, like Facebook and all these companies were gathering data basically for free, and that there was no real enterprise social solution. And so I said, let us try that. And if we could marry network and data, think what we could do. And so we built a product that helped companies build social on top of everything else and then keep the data. Now, as I said, part of the problem was we targeted entertainment companies and media companies as our core market. And they said, great, Cisco, you're here. You'll sponsor this. So I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not this isn't a charitable thing. We're kind of trying to make a business out of it. And then the other side of it as well was figure out how to get a price. Because Cisco also, I mean, they were asking, hey, what's your revenue curve going to look like? I felt that pressure too heavily. And I tried to force a revenue curve too soon onto a business that needed more time or needed more oxygen. So in any event, I learned a lot. It was critical to me to lead and learn. I think that I would say that the technical team we had was fantastic and really believed in the project and did an incredible job. We had our largest client was Warner Music. So we were building all of Warner Music social and they were seeing the thesis happen. Traffic was going from Facebook to them, right? They were controlling the data. Everything was working. But as I said, my inability to figure out pricing for the whole thing caused a lot of problems. Got it. I mean, you know, it's funny. So many of these things, just like timing, right? It's just, it's a, it's a good idea, but but timing wise, it also may not be the right time. And I think that's pretty remarkable. But one thing I want to ask you about is so, and I have the stats here actually. From I think it's 1990 was the IPO to now 30 plus years later, the market cap of Cisco is up 59,000 percent. It's pretty astronomical. And a lot of this came from expanding into adjacencies outside of the core networking area, right? So what was it like running Corp Dev in that? And how do you evaluate new areas to get into? Because traditionally right now, people say, hey, just focus on your core product, move from there into an adjacency. But Cisco kind of almost did this, I don't want to say conglomerate model, but like was able to find new areas to just completely buy and build around. So how did you go about doing that? I think we were blessed in that one thing that was key in the networking industry was that everything was open standards. So it meant the only differentiation was speed and execution. If you thought about it, that meant that if you missed the market, you were in trouble. And we had scale. So the idea was to take that scale and the execution that the company had done and expand into new markets. When I took over, Everything was going up and to the right, right? It was just before 2000. Within 90 days, everything was 
going the other direction, right? Within the company, they said, the only thing, what, what changed? We put Scheinman in charge of corp death. That's what caused <laughs> this whole mess. But for us, we had to recalibrate immediately. My first years running corp death were in the same situation as it is now, right? Which is, we were sitting there with a core business that was not doing great, right? With adjacencies that were not getting enough food, we're not getting enough resources because we had to scale back. And we, quite frankly, being totally honest, we felt we were undervalued. Every target we looked at, we felt was overvalued. And it meant that for over a year, there was not much going on. And so it was probably that period of time which led me to recognize two quick things that we needed to do. One was there was enormous value in finding winners. And in order to find winners, the most important thing was finding people who were going to stay committed to the cause. And as you know, there's some people who, quite frankly, just want to flip their startup and go on to the next thing. If you buy those people, there's basically 0% chance that the acquirer ends up doing okay. So we spend a lot of time trying to figure out, are the people committed? To be honest, that led me down another crazy rat hole, which is, in general, I had people with incredible IQ looking at deals, but sometimes maybe not high in EQ. And so asking them to read the people And so I said, oh, gee, if I could combine high EQ, high IQ people, man, I can solve this problem. Okay, brilliant. What happened? All those people went to war with each other, right? Why do I have to work with this one? They don't know spreadsheets. Why do I have to work with this one? They can't read a room, you know? And so I realized, okay, good idea in theory, lousy execution. That was one core thing. And then the other was like, you have to fail. This is a line I steal from Jay Shree, but you got to kiss a lot of frogs in this business to make it work. So... I had to bury the legal thing of, oh, there's risk. It's like, yeah, the biggest risk is if you miss something, right? And if you miss something, then there's no amount of little wins can make up for it. So yeah, so Cisco was very key and core about we got to be aggressive, we've got to be smart, and we've got to take risk. And I had a team that really bought into that and was willing to go out and do those things. And it made it a lot of fun to go look for those kinds of things. My metric when I started was, that less than 10% of our revenue came outside of our core business. And by the time I turned over as head of corp dev, it was up to 40%. Oh, wow. So I was able to help the company diversify into new areas to take the magic that we had been doing in networking, which effectively in many ways sort of died as a venture market after the bubble burst. And we were able to go into other spaces in order to help bring Cisco back. And I think that formula worked because at some point, Management got very comfortable that, okay, we're not that undervalued. We're willing to spend capital and stock here. And we were able to get to real valuations with the other side. And honestly, in today's market, that hasn't happened yet. Every CEO I talk to says, we're wildly undervalued. I don't know, maybe, right? Um, And every target, oh, yeah, they're wildly overvalued. I don't know, maybe, but you're not going to get a deal done if you think like that. <laughs> well, that, that's one thing I want to ask you actually about is, so companies using M&A as a tool, right? I guess like the hard part is there's no ARR threshold, right? It's almost like maturity in the market maybe or something like that, that you should maybe think about using M&A as a tool. But I don't know, what sort of advice do you have for founders based on you know stage of maturity and where the product is, where they should think about leveraging M&A? Right. And I think honestly, the biggest learning from Cisco I had, number one, is it's about the team you're buying. You want to make sure that that team is going to stay and that that team is going to work through whatever challenges they're going to be and that they're going to be with you in, you know, 
two years, three years, right? That's the first thing to think about and make sure you understand that team and the motivations of those people. So I think that's the biggest thing. That's the thing that I would advise. Then in terms of when to do M&A, look, most M&A in privates is done is basically people anyway. So you're just buying people, right? And I think you should always look for opportunity to do those things, right? Because you can sometimes find, particularly in this market, teams that will augment you and be better than hiring, right? As to when you should do product M&A, I think it's only when your go-to-market is mature enough to allow you to invest in potentially a second go-to-market motion. There's no ARR threshold for that, but I mean, there is a clear time. To me, below 50 million, I find it hard to go do. You still need to put all your resources into broadening and maybe globalizing your initial effort. And so now you're going to distract with another germ of something. But certainly north of 100, I think you should have your eyes wide open. One thing that founders do sometimes, which is they, of course, realize how hard it is to scale the core business and they become wedded to that core business. But no iconic company in Silicon Valley is a one product company at the end of the day, right? You have to add other product lines, right? Whether it's Zuckerberg with Instagram, Cisco going way back when it added Crescendo and did switching. There's no one product line company and you can't build everything. It's not possible, right? You need to look for those opportunities, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I want to flip into the angel investing side because you have a very unique model, which is, I think it's you invest in like one to three companies per year and it's a very concentrated strategy, right? So how do you choose the founders that you're going to partner with when you're only doing that few a year? Yes. So again, my, my wife basically, as I told you, said, look, if you're going to do this, we need irrational returns, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I said, okay, that's actually not a crazy directive. How do I get irrational returns? So the thing is, I said, I got to look for outliers. And again, when I started this in 2011, there weren't that many companies going public. It was still a relatively small number. And I defined those as outliers. And when I looked at them, there were real characteristics. The founders were outside the system. They were kind of rebels. And so you needed to find those kinds of people. So my view is that they were very rare and that I wanted to have higher concentration bets in those if I could. And then the other thing that I believed is, I really believe it's about the people. I wanted to trust my instinct, right? And say, do I like these people? And honestly, one challenge in, in our industry, sometimes unlikable people do well, right? But for me, I just didn't feel like those were the kind of people that I wanted to spend time on, right? And I felt like I wouldn't be able to connect with them and, you know, whatever. But I do believe that if you find people you can connect to and you can see they have the right, and then the last thing really, and the hardest thing is, do they understand go to market? Hmm. And particularly in enterprise, I've come to believe that, look, software, you can fix, you can change in general. There's a lot of mythology in VC about, okay, this company won because it had this incredible architecture of a product, right? But to me, that's really super rare that architecture wins. What seems to win is go to market and early go-to-market strategy. It's so bizarre to me still, you know, you get these decks that are 20 slides of TAM and product and check boxes versus competitors. And then maybe one slide at the end of, yeah, here's how you tend to sell, right? But it's the single most important question, right? Which is where are you gonna find those early customers? What are you selling them early, right? What are they gonna buy of yours early? What's the MVP? What's the core value prop? And then how do we repeat that? Every time I've made a mistake, it's been around that. I always tell a story. I invested in these two guys who were geniuses. I mean, like I was blown away. I'd never met two founders who I felt were as smart as these guys. 
but we were having trouble get selling. And at one point I called them and said, okay, look, what's going on? And they said, we have concluded that our prospects are all idiots. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> That's amazing. Won't. Yeah. Why are they all idiots? Well, they want to keep their old infrastructure. And we tell them in order to use our software, you need to throw out your old infrastructure. And I'm like, well, we have found idiots. I will agree with you. Right. But it turned out these guys were brilliant, but had zero customer empathy. Right. And they didn't want to compromise in order to do what needed to be done. I was like, wow, love this at some level, but don't love this at a business level. <laughs> that is a, that's an incredible story. I have not, I've, I've not run across that yet in my career, thankfully, but that's incredible. One thing you talked about with outliers, it's interesting because you could talk, actually, you've talked mostly about outliers as people. Sometimes people look at stuff from an outlier of like, it's a product idea that's two years ahead of time or things like that. Some of your most successful investments have been these companies that have started in highly competitive areas, right? Yep. When Zoom was out, there's already a number of competitors. Sentinel One, already a number of competitors out there, right? How do you figure out the outliers within the context of, hey, there's already a ton of money, capital, competitors, everything? Like, What are you looking for there? So the reality is that, again, one myth, I think, in VC, particularly in enterprise VC, is on first mover advantage, that the first mover always wins. And the reality is that I think in a lot of markets, if not all enterprise markets, that's not true. And so it means the myth that says the first mover wins, there's a lot of opportunity in later movers because the technology advances, the ideas get better, founders figure out the mistakes of earlier founders, right? And so I actually believe that in crowded markets, that's one place where you have a lot of opportunity. And then the other, of course, is in failed markets where something's failed a lot. But give it time and somebody will figure out how to make it work. Like Endpoint happened to be both of those, quite frankly. Sentinel One, it was like, no one makes money in this market and there's too many competitors, right? <laughs> like, okay. So I'm like, wow, I need a trifecta. Maybe what's the third here? If you're not willing to invest in those markets, you're not going to find the outliers. There's got to be something that's not right in order to find outliers. And that's the core. When I started, also, I would say age was a big outlier factor, although that's changed today. But, you know, the age of the founder, if you were, quote, too old, that was viewed as an outlier. So looking for those things is really important in finding winners that are big enough to satisfy my LP, my wife's bar for what I should be doing, right? Can you maybe give a specific example, though, like in terms of whether it's Zoom, Sentinel One, Arista, wherever, but when they come to you, right, you're aware that no one's made money in Endpoint. You're aware that it's a very crowded market, right? You're aware of all these things. So there must be something that you're hearing from them that you're just like, wow, either this, maybe it's this person is crazy or this person has a new entry point into the area or they can articulate all the competitors and clearly say the weak point. Like, what is it that you're, that you're looking for? Well, first of all, I knew Eric. So I love Eric and I've told the story a lot, which is I already made the decision by the time I got there, I was going to write the check and I handed him a check before we even started. I love that guy. And honestly, 10 years on, I still love that guy. He's a great guy. He's a unique founder. But what Eric had, again, two things that I would throw at you. First was, Every competitor probably had a better UI than Zoom. There was a lot of good UI, but what was the core problem? Their core technology was based on WebRTC, and WebRTC relied on Google to fix bugs. This was not a way to build a scalable company, but God bless, they had some beautiful UI, right? And then the second thing was that Eric understood, he had been early at WebEx, and he understood the, the WebEx go-to-market motion like 
incredible. And so he knew exactly what he was going to do, and more importantly, what he was not going to do in scaling the company. So he said very early on, we are selling to S in SMB. We're going to sell to education because I want to get the next generation of kids hooked on Zoom, largely colleges at the time. And so his go-to-market was clear. And when people called him and said, Eric, we love you. You know, can we take a look at Zoom? And they were enterprise or mid-market companies. He would say, yeah, give me six months, which honestly may have been two years. He wanted to make sure that the product was done and ready. Another thing about Eric, every VC we would go into would tell us, number one, revenge deals don't work. This is a revenge deal, which it wasn't. I mean, it was dead simple. We were taking this stuff and moving it to the cloud. And Eric understood uniquely how to build a product that was going to scale and just work and fix the problems of the previous generation of video conferencing companies, right? He understood the customer and the customer frustrations really well. And with the mobile age, it really gave us the ability to have clients that auto-update, which everyone at the time said, oh, that's a disaster. It doesn't work. But have you used a mobile phone, right? Every app on here is a client that auto-updates. You're fine, right? So that skepticism about the market, about Eric, about everything. And Eric only understood legacy technologies, yada, yada, yada. I heard all these things that were all largely insane. So for us, what we did was, what I believed in was that he was going to out-execute everyone and that the web RTC companies were never going to scale and that they never had to go to market. None of them, right? And to this day, I occasionally run into people who used one of the early ones and said, you know, that you should have stolen their UI. And that maybe that's true, Right. But they should have understood. They didn't understand the core technology and they didn't understand the go-to-market. Sentinel-1, I will tell you what impressed me. Tomer came in and said, at the time, there were 25 funded endpoint companies. And he said, I'm going to segment each of these and tell you what their strengths and limitations are. Right? The market ultimately funded 35. Right? (laughs) So for a market where no one makes money, but yet we better roll the dice here. It was very bizarre. And of which two ended up mattering, CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1. Right? But Tomer's ability to segment and, you know, really understand the market was honestly was so impressive that I felt he understood the endpoint market in a way that most founders don't. And he understood what even the five person startup in wherever was building, right? His clarity and segmentation of the market and his vision about how he was going to use AI to take the biggest problem, which was false positives and also, quite frankly, humans having to do everything, right? And make this purely automated and machine-driven over time. I just said, he's right, right, at the end of the day. And yeah, we're going to have to fight for a long time to get there. But the vision has been dead on right. So you want that kind of extraordinary thing. And, and also one other thing, sorry, back to Eric for one second. When I was with Eric, Eric had about 1,500 people who worked for him at Zoom, Right. And I asked him, how many of those people sent resumes to you, you know, already? In the, we quit Cisco the same day. And in two weeks, he told me that over a thousand resumes he'd received. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, seriously, this shows what a great guy he is. I had received one. So I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> huh. But Eric is demanding to work for you. I mean, he's a great guy. God bless, right? Love the guy. But he's also demanding. He likes to push and he likes to go. But People like that. I saw these notes to him were incredible. It's like, you're the best boss I ever had because you brought out my best work. And it was just, quite frankly, unbelievable to read some of the notes that he was getting. So yes, when you find people like that, I want to bet on people like that. 
That is just an incredible story, especially the resumes. I mean, if only we all could have that. I'm, I'm sure uh, <laughs> my previous jobs, that would not be the case. So that's that's amazing. Uh, we talked about right now, there's these preemptive fundraisers, or I shouldn't say right now, a year ago or, or two years ago or whatever. There was all these preemptive fundraisers, big raises. The, the goal was you raise every you know one year, even one year was considered slow, maybe six months, right? And it was just like scale, 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 hire more people, ship more product, do all this sort of stuff. What's interesting is you just told me Eric said no to many customers in the beginning. And so clearly did not have this sort of like, oh my God, we're going to grow like crazy every single time, take all this money and beat everybody that way. So what were the trade-offs with those decisions? Because I imagine it wasn't all up and to the right, right? There was probably some pitfalls along the journey there where they were just like, oh my God, what's going on? So walk us through like how founders should think about versus what they've seen recently, which is just like, hey, we're supposed to raise a bunch of money. Versus somebody like Eric being like, hey, actually, I'm not going to take your revenue right now. Wait for me and I'll be there in two years. Right. And this is one of the things that I believe. I'm not always able to convince founders of this, but premature scale is a pretty big risk. Now, in a bubble market where, quote, everyone's doing it, there's some example of a company that took money and it all worked. To steal Reed Hoffman's term where blitzscaling worked, Right. The problem is I've seen multiple examples in my life, particularly in the aftermath of 2000 and now in this aftermath, where blitzscaling didn't work. In fact, I just saw a company the other day where they have tried it and failed. They've consistently missed revenue forecasts, right? Their last round valuation is now like they got funded 200 times ARR, and now they've grown into it. They're 100 times (laughs) ARR, okay? So they haven't done very well. And the reality is, is they'll never get last round valuation. They have too much money to just go away. So they're kind of in this lost situation, right? I think they would have been much smarter had they said, let's focus on product market fit. Let's focus on repeatability. Like those are the two planks of growth. If we can get that, my core belief is someone will fund you, right? That we can call you up and, you know, you will say, let me take a look. That's the core of what I believe. At Arista and with Eric, the founders effectively didn't need any money after a certain point. Eric really didn't need money after we took a a round from Jerry Yang and from folks in Hong Kong as the second round. And we spent about half of that before we turned cash flow break even. And so the argument on the other side is, did we constrain our growth? But I don't believe so. And also 100% growth is good enough. Sequoia, when they came look at us, didn't say, oh, you need to have 300% growth. They said, this looks great. This opportunity is big. Let's roll the dice. And when emergence came to us, same thing. We never spent a nickel of emergence's money, but they said, You're, this is fast enough for us and we believe. And so I think to some extent, the growth number, the growth number porn that happened in 2020 and 2021, I think is a misservice to founders. And particularly if something goes wrong, it leaves you with a bloated cost structure and no way out of the mess because you're too expensive to get acquired. You have too many people to kind of go back and rescope and figure out what went wrong and why am I not getting product market fit? Yeah. It's something that so many companies are going through right now. It's it's kind of hard to see how they come out of it. But one thing is, I imagine there's this transition from private to public that now all of a sudden founders have to go through if they're still the CEO of the company, right? And so you've seen it now successfully with multiple companies. What's that transition look like? What do they have to learn 
that's different when they're public versus when they're private? Yeah. So first of all, I'm a believer that the public market is a good thing. So unlike some VCs who, and some founders who think the longer you're private, the better, I actually think this idea at some point you should be building in public is a good thing. And I think actually most investors, and not necessarily the sell-side analysts, but most actual investors really dig in, understand the company, and actually offer thoughtful suggestions and generally are kind of smart about helping the company think through choices. But I do think the biggest transition is going from being in a room where, let's say, five or six people on a private board are the only people who really know the numbers and really opine on those numbers to it being out there and you having to position for that. I think that it forces a lot of behaviors first, internally figuring out the communication skills so that your employees could understand the journey you're on, particularly when we've had so much volatility as we've had in the last year, is one of the harder things. And then figuring out, technology is so complex, but figuring out how to simplify your messages, right, for a broader audience. Now, the challenge on the other side is sometimes I've seen CEOs become a creature of that simple message, right? So they're like, well, this works. And so I'm going to just keep repeating it internally where we need more complexity. So finding that balance and making sure to some level at Cisco, we had a leader who became distanced a little bit from reality and was in that bubble and didn't really understand the business. Right. And so here I try to make sure that, you know, like all of our CEOs stay connected to the business and that they're knee deep in making sure they understand so that, that the simplification doesn't become a sort of message in and of itself. If that makes sense, I know I'm, I'm not being entirely clear, but that, I mean, that's a really important part of things. And then the quarterly discipline, I would say founders get very good at explaining misses to their boards and boards in general, if you're directionally correct, will be supportive, right? Okay. You only grew at 87%. That's okay. Right. Uh, we don't care about the hundred that much, right? Public company investors, different story. And so it means that you've got to really amp up the forecasting process. And I've seen every company I've been with has gone through revolution in forecasting where the immature system that we, you go out with has to get better and get much better. And I think that's super important. And then also the ability to figure out what your buffer is, right? Because nobody's going to say, okay, let's put it all out there. And if we miss, hey, it's going to be fine, right? You have to always buffer. And figuring out what, how much and how do you manage that buffer, right, is really important. I think one thing that I'm curious to double click on a little bit more is, so one time, I think it was uh, Adam Gross, the former CEO of Heroku, and I asked him, like, what did Salesforce do really well? And he goes, you know what Salesforce does better than anybody else? They have extraordinary external comms, but they also have incredible internal comms. And so he's like, a lot of what's happening with Dreamforce, you may think it's this big dog and pony show, and, and it is, right? It's a huge thing. But also all of that messaging is going back to the employees, who the customers are, how they should be positioning, all that sort of stuff. And I don't know if the companies that you've worked with had and something similar, but I'm just curious how you think about that external, internal comms approach. I think Salesforce is world-class at that. Salesforce, I think, may be the number one company in the world being able to do that. So every company I'm in is not quite at that level yet in terms of being able to do that. But I would say most tech companies, when they start at the public level, don't realize the importance of that external, internal messaging situation. And quite frankly, their internal messaging in general consists of all hands, 
right? Mm, These freewheeling yeah. all hands where you get up and to move to a more disciplined thing where we say, okay, we're going to take customer feedback now and we're going to put it back into our messaging to our own team so they understand is a process, a maturity process. And I think, you know, it's one of the things about Salesforce, I think more people should steal, you know, or borrow is their sophistication and maturity of using their user event to create change within the company and create momentum, positive momentum inside the company. So yeah, I think that the internal comms piece is one of the last maturing things that I see in companies. This move from just, hey, we'll handle it at the all hands to know this is a 24-7 function that we need to make sure that people understand in a dynamic industry what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. One big shift that happens also from private to public is your investments start to get scrutinized, right? And the return on those investments, your your ROIC, right? Starts to yes. return on invested capital for those listening, starts to get scrutinized. So you look at Zoom during COVID. At that point, it's just like, hold on for, you know, for yeah. as much as you can and just do whatever you can to scale, right? Because you got to yeah. serve the customers and you just got to scale up resources and that's the only thing you could do capital allocation wise. You just got to freaking go at it. Right. But then like, you know, stuff starts to adjust back to kind of a new normal, if you want to call it that or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like what you were just doing now just changes and you have to think about things differently for capital allocation. How do you deal with that short term versus long term decision making process? And I will say this is where also boards have to change because pre-public it's very clear, you know, capital allocation is generally sales or engineering, really, at the end of the day. Whereas post-public, it's much more complicated. And particularly when you have a pandemic and the kind of incredible growth Zoom saw, it gets incredibly complicated. And one thing that I found at Zoom was also, we were seeing this unprecedented level of growth, which is fantastic. But the organization could only absorb it in the situation it was in, meaning the managers you have are the ones who got to go do the hiring, mm. right? Even though you might want to vector more in a certain direction, if you didn't have people in that direction, you weren't going to be able to do it. So you were in some level constrained by what you had and you built around what you had and you try and shoehorn opportunities into what you had. So quite frankly, the other thing that happened, which is when you're growing that fast, you're not as disciplined always around where you're hiring because you're hiring everywhere. I would also say just generally this whole war for talent in general, created really bad hiring practice, not only at companies I'm in, but throughout the industry, right? This idea that sometimes it was better to compromise to get someone in the door or pay them more or do whatever, instead of having discipline, I think is still causing a lot of problems. So capital allocation is, yes, in theory, there's one way to think about it, but in practice, you're really constrained by your org. Like in Zoom's case, it was clear we needed more high-end enterprise folks, because we were building up to that. But we didn't have a team that was there to quite do that, right? So allocating more resources into SMB people and telling them to chase enterprise doesn't solve your problem, right? So in any event, it's incredibly complex. And then I will tell you that the hangover that every company I've seen, and not only ones I'm invested in, but every company where I've talked to people, everything, was the war for talent led to strange outcomes. And you've seen everybody from Salesforce you know, having to do layoffs and saying something isn't quite right with where we ended up post COVID. We've ended up in a strange place and the market downturn. It's not just that things are slower. It's that there's something not quite right inside these organizations that we need to fix. Right. 
So every company's been having to do some level of pruning. For the people involved, I have incredible empathy because it's never their fault, 100% never their fault. But on the other side, for the organization, you have to do something. You can't just keep rolling and pushing the rock up the hill. The org side thing, I think that's an incredible point that you mentioned, which is basically, hey, you can do the capital allocation analysis all you want, but in the end, like it's still people dealing with other people. And, and so you got to manage that. You know, At the private side, right? Normally when that happens, you say, hey, founder, exec team, whoever, let's grab dinner together. Let's talk about this, right? We can go through everything, all that sort of stuff. I imagine when you're public, like, I don't know, do you have to have like legal counsel there or something? Like, can you still do that sort of thing? Like, how do you get no. to that tactical understanding of what's going on with the org so that you can make these sort of informed capital allocation decisions or help them? I, and I actually believe in a public company, the CEO has to come to the decision first because they have to live with it, right? In a private company, yes, you can have the dinner and the coaching and all that. But in a public company, my real view is the CEO has to decide this needs to happen or it doesn't. Most CEOs will ask, hey, what do you think? But the other thing is they're getting pressure from their shareholders telling them, hey, we want to see you be like this or like that, or there's issues, right? At Sentinel One, I will say we have not been profitable until this point. And obviously, the faster you grow, the easier it is to become profitable with scale, right? So Tomer has committed, hey, I'm going to do it by then. But it's in part because he's heard this from his public shareholders, right? At Zoom, people were starting to worry a little bit about our profitability and say, wait, the trends aren't good here. So anyway, at Zoom, the CEO had decided, I've got a lot of folks that are in places that aren't growing as fast as they were. I have a misallocation of resources. I need to invest over here, right? And the only way I can do this is by a layoff. And I, as a board member, feel if I told him this, you know, it's different, right? Then it's like, I'm just like a shareholder telling him. And so once he reached that realization, then it's the board's job to say, okay, how can we help? You know, let's look at, make sure these packages are fair. Let's make sure that we're doing the right thing. Are we going too deep? Are we going not deep enough? What are we doing, right? And I think these are all individual decisions and are deeply driven by, have to be driven by the founder. And quite frankly, the CFO usually has a large role in this. And I find that pre-public, of course, board is really important, but post-public, it's about the CFO and the founder coming to that realization. Got it. What has made you an effective board member over the years? And I think a lot of the learnings that I have is like, it's sometimes the questions that you ask, right? But sometimes the, the stupid questions that actually come up with the most interesting answers. But at the same time, it's like, you're asking a stupid question. Like you feel like, an, you, know, you feel like you might be wasting people's time or something. Like what are the tactics and, and skills that you've learned over, over years? I have long believed that actually the biggest power you have is in asking the dumb question, right? So I've gotten over whatever embarrassment of asking. And also, look, I'm not technical. So every question I'm going to ask at some level will be dumb because I don't understand how the Zoom codec works. I can't tell you, but I do understand business. So I try So for me, I think the most effective board members I've seen are the ones who do not try and operate, who try and be a mentor coach to the CEO. And it's a strange relationship. I mean, let's be honest. Jayshree doesn't need me to tell her what to do, right? She's more experienced, smarter, you know, sadly funnier than I am. But sometimes she's in her own head. What I do find is asking why or what alternatives did you look at will sometimes generate her to think, yeah, what alternatives did I look at, right? I got myself locked into this Maybe I should be looking like, what else, right? And sometimes she'll come back to me and say, the original call was the right call, right? Cool. But sometimes she goes back to me and says, 
you know, I hadn't thought through this enough. I was too quick to get to this. Let's look at this other thing. So what I find is first being really good at asking dumb questions. And I found that in general, most board members, quite frankly, appreciate that because they're thinking the same thing, but they may be too embarrassed to ask, you know, instead of dumb, we should call it basic questions, right? So I find trying to get up the mountain as high as you can and ask the highest level basic question sometimes is the most important thing. And the biggest question is always why, right? We are convinced this is going to happen. Okay, why? The answers can be super revealing about things. So the other sin on boards that I've seen is trying to be the smartest person in the room. It's not that useful to the collective or to the CEO. You know, you're on a board because you're there to contribute and it's not about you. It's really about them. And so I've tried to really focus on, okay, how does Jay Shree feel? What's she thinking? You know, has she thought through things clearly enough? And like 90% of the time, the answer may be, okay, yeah. But 10% of the time, it may be, you know what? I need to double down. I need to think this through again. Or, you know, you're right. What's the balance that you strike between delivering advice versus asking questions? Let's say you you see how something's playing out. You know exactly what's going to happen. A lot of what you just told me is like, hey, the founder's already thinking about it or the founder's already looked at different things and you're asking them questions to be like, hey, let's revisit that one more time, right? So what's that balance? Is it 80, 20%? Is it even more screwed? Is it is it 50-50? Like, you- no, I think it's definitely 80, 20 or more skewed, right? I've come to believe that even advice you should try and offer in the form of a question if you can. But there's been times, of course, like, you know, quite frankly, I was looking in one company at an acquisition where it wasn't going to work. And I could tell because the founder wanted to quit. The idea was, okay, we're just going to buy the technology without the founder and we'll take care of it. It's like, that never works. I can tell you I had a 100% failure rate without a Cisco, right? That just does not work. So there I was more didactic and saying, look, here's what data has shown me from what I've done, right? Now, maybe it's a different world, of course, you know, old data, you know, and so that kind of thing, I will kind of try and give advice. But most of the time, I'm going to try and ask, okay, now, why did we settle on a company where the founder's leaving, right? What's our plan? Who's going to be accountable internally? Why do we think that the team will stay loyal to that person, right? Which should get you to the same outcome, right? And if it doesn't, then you switch into advice mode. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. Final question on the board that I want to ask is taking the learnings that you have from public, bringing them to private. Again, you go super early, right? Just like Boldstart does. You, you are there at the beginning, pre-product stage, right? As the company is going. But meanwhile, you have companies with <laughs> like billions of ARR, right? That, that you're, you're dealing with. So what learnings do you take from those billions of ARRs and bring into the boardroom for the two to five person startup that is just saying like, Dan, we're trying to find product market fit. Okay. So for there in those two to five, the biggest thing that I am is I describe myself as a CFO, chief focus officer, right? (laughs) And what I have seen is the founders that are successful, again, Jayshree, Eric, Tomer, all three, right? Are relentless focus in the beginning. And in some ways, a startup is like being in a candy store. There's a lot of opportunity to defocus. But my whole core is we have to build an MVP and we have to get to repeatability. If those two problems we don't solve, you know, bad things will happen. Now, the other problem was, okay, for a couple of years, two, three years, didn't matter, right? Yeah. Somebody would come along and say, this is great, right? 
why is this great? Right. But I, I couldn't figure that out. And then my third thing, which I'm not as strong on, but I try and softly preach is capital efficiency. I'm aligned as an early investor with the founder. And the more capital efficient we are, the better off it is, right? For both of us. You know, if we can be capital efficient, it can be another superpower we have. So I try and bring those. I mean, most CEOs, quite frankly, who work with me will say, okay, yeah, at least you're consistent, but I'm kind of tired of hearing the same thing, but you're consistent, right? And I try and be consistent and try and, you know, the other thing is sometimes to call BS and say, okay, we don't have an MVP, right? Because one of the sins I see is in the enterprise, you chase four different customers with effectively four different products, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, pick one. And then repeatability, it's like, in SaaS, it's like, how do we reach those people? If it's all through connections, that's going to be a small town. It's got to be repeatable to a bigger town, right? Do we have marketing? Do we find these people and they come in the funnel? Do we have sales doing outbound calls? Do we do both, right? Do we know who exactly is the person who says, yeah, I'm interested in widget, right? And if we don't know who that is within the first couple of years, we're not going to have repeatability. And that means we're going to be very inefficient. And then it leads to a thousand other things, right? So honestly, the last few years, I was a little depressed because discipline broke down. People were like, you know, my big funders are telling me, go do everything, right? Scale, scale, scale. It's like, scale what? We got nothing. We're scaling nothing, right? And now things to be returning to normal. And it's like, okay, back to like MVP, repeatability, right? I keep trying to say the best founders that I've ever seen, that's what they did. And so if you can do those things, I know there's a bright future ahead. Let's say I'm a founder, though, coming to you saying, hey, I want to be capital efficient, Dan. Like, this is what I want to do. At the same time, like I need to get leads, for example, and I have a, two people on the marketing team, right? But if I hire that demand gen person, it's going to give us all the leads we need and then I'll be capital efficient, right? And then it's like the next thing comes up, which is like, okay, but you know, demand gen, but then I realize we also need some product marketing to supplement that, right? And then like, you know, we need an SDR to, you know, kind of follow up on some of those leads and so on and so forth, right? And so you could build that matrix. Right. And I think the powerful question, Oa, is, is why? And particularly this issue of like, what are your other two people doing in marketing? Why does this have to be and? It may be or. To me, it's like the single biggest issue is like, when I hear people doing that, quite frankly, I think, okay, you don't understand your lead generation process really yet. And so it's like, let's go through those first five or 10 early leads. Where did they come from? And quite frankly, one contrarian thing is this is where I don't want VCs providing leads to customers because it doesn't help. It's sugar. It's not, you know, protein, right? The protein is, like, do you know what title we're targeting, right? And then what worked? Was it LinkedIn stuff, right? Was it, you know, calls from an actual human, right? What is it that actually worked? And then let's try and repeat that. And I think what happened was, quite frankly, again, back to the growth porn era, People were like, well, 100% growth isn't good enough, or no growth is good enough. We have to get to 300, 400 to go compete with everybody else. And therefore, in order to do that, we need to build everything right away. But everything right away in general doesn't work. And instead, what we want to do is just figure out what works so that we can repeat it and then build the economics so that we can add on and try new things. So I try and be disciplined about that. I got fooled to some extent by some companies in the recent period because all of a sudden growth showed up. And I'm like, all right, we got to keep going. But it turned out we were selling into other late stage companies, right? 
And all of a sudden they said, uh, stop, we can't buy anymore, right? There's no project, we're not growing, we don't have any account, it's over. And so all of a sudden, yeah, okay, we'd invested into a channel that wasn't real, even though I thought it was, and it looked real. But now we're going to be back to the old, is the customer real? Can you repeat? I'll give you an example. There's a company I invested in supply chain called Unity SCM, led by the great Amir Teichman, who's a great guy, just an absolutely prince of a human, right? And Amir, you know, his big dream is to build a platform. But as you know, no one has ever bought a platform from a startup. So we kept brainstorming about, like, where do we start? And he found a market called container tracking, where the data was publicly made available by shippers, but people were having trouble making the data useful in their own systems, right? And so you had people putting data into Excel spreadsheets and then trying to figure out how to put it back into systems, whereas we could put it into useful systems right away. But let's do that. And it turned out that they also found they could repeat, they had a repeatable motion into the market. They were able to repeatably get a certain number of leads a week. And so all of a sudden you have that. And what happened was instead of selling a platform and having, quite frankly, 10 different products on the table and the engineering guy going bald slowly then quickly, right? You had this incredible ramp around one thing. Now, is that TAM going to support a public company? No, of course. But is that going to support the second module? Of course it will, right? And the customers now will tell you, hey, can you also do this, right? And do that, right? And so they're leading us into modules two, three, and four. So this focus leads to much, and repeatability lead to much better results. And the crazy thing is, I mean, this is what I keep saying, the venture industry knows what to do. The problem is the venture industry gets wrapped up into oh my God, we're behind, we need to compete with all these other companies, or we got to do this, we got to do that. It gets wrapped up in craziness. But the core of venture advice is actually right. And it's a matter of just sticking to that sometimes. It's insane what happens when everything is kind of up and to the right. It's like nothing is good enough and let's do crazy stuff, right? And that led to the company I was telling you about, right, getting crazy valuation and then growing by 40%, right? And now with a ton of capital, but no ability to get to anything because it hadn't figured out the core early stage problem of MVP and repeatability. It's funny because you would have thought we would have learned the lesson from, you know, 2020, 2021 and now, but we're seeing it again happen before our eyes with LLMs. It's literally just happening right now. It's completely insane. This is a term I am stealing. I met somebody who said, in the last couple of years, I didn't do much, so I have Jomo. I'm like, what's that? The joy of missing out. <laughs> and I am not in, involved in LLM wars. I have, I have an AI investment from years ago that I, I'm very bullish on, but it's real AI people, right? Solving hard problems, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, we've just come through a period where we've seen the ills of that model, right? But here we go again, right? And to some extent, I think, you know, people are kind of comforted, like, okay, this game is still going on. And the craziness is, in 2001, I mean, a lot of VC funds said, okay, we're not going to invest in semiconductor or network anymore. And they fired all the people, right? Now we're seeing that to some extent, the slow de-investment in SaaS. But I actually believe now there are going to be a lot of great SaaS companies who are going to be more disciplined, better. And those that stick with it are actually going to get great returns, right? Enterprise software is not going away. The Jomo, that's that's the first I've heard that, but that is incredible. Uh, uh, so last question I want to ask you before we, we get to our final questions. We just talked about the current state of the market and the frustrations, but obviously 
you are still doing this job because you like it, right? You yes. like working with founders from the beginning stage. So what has got you fired up about the future right now? It could be a technical change. It could be the state of the market. It could be whatever. What are things that you are really fired up about right now? So I say the core is that as a believer in outliers, I think I'm going to be able to find more outliers now than I was when everything was getting funded. For a period of time, probably three years, there was no such thing as an outlier because everything was funded. So for me, the biggest excitement is back looking at early stage teams who can't get funding from anybody and trying to figure out who the outliers are and looking for those people and kind of going back to finding coalitions of the willing to invest early, trying to figure out where the next stage is going to come from. So that has me super excited. The other thing is I've learned in my core, I'm sort of a value investor in tech, weirdly. And so I get nervous when valuations get too high. And so now that things are coming back down in non-AI segment, it's like, okay, now I'm beginning to understand things again. It makes more sense. The eternal lessons can be applied and we can do things. So I'm excited about the future. What I'm nervous about is whether or not there's going to be enough convicted people to fund SaaS anymore. And that has me a little bit nervous. I mean, I definitely lived through the thing in 2000 when the world deinvested in network and semiconductor, and that made it rough. I mean, it was really rough for those of us in the sector. I mean, like, man, there's no pipeline here anymore. So I'm hoping that sense prevails amongst the later stage folks. In fact, I was talking to a later stage person and saying, you know, will sense prevail? And he was like, I believe it will, but the pressures in my fund to get out of SaaS right now is very high. But at some point, we're not going to keep chasing AI and go through that. That doesn't make a ton of sense either. So I'm like, exactly. So at some point, I think SaaS will survive, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful for that too. I also think the founders that are building in this macro environment in the SaaS world are are going to do so capital efficiently, are going to solve pain points aggressively, and it's going to lead to some amazing outcomes. So hopefully... Founders, if you're listening, you know, Dan is is willing to back you. Many others are excited to back you. And so please keep building. It's what makes this uh, keep going around. But to wrap things up, we have two questions we ask everyone on Software Snack Bites. So the first one is going to be, what's your favorite technology or app or anything in that in that realm that you've played with or researched recently? So I'm going to be guilty of selling my own book, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you one, which is in the whole mess of SOC 2 compliance, there's a gobbledygook of things, but I've never seen a company that's made it more simple and easy and scalable as Drata. I'm really proud of those guys. It's not a company where I would say I am you know, 100% involved. They just took off like incredibly, but that product is really remarkable in a complex area. And I think they deserve a ton of kudos. Adam Mark was the founder, had thought about this problem for a long time and actually built an internal tool at his last company to solve it because he was so frustrated with the solutions. I mean, and so just a unique guy, incredible guy. And so that has me excited. I would also say that real AI solutions done by people who are scientists also has me excited. There's this company, Immubit, I'm in, where the technical founder is a professor of AI, right, and machine learning. And his ability to actually see and solve problems, and he's doing an unsexy area in the industrial internet. But what they're doing is incredible. They're running in this case, oil production machines, to produce more oil with less human involvement, it's so exciting, it's incredible. And eventually they're going to do other things and they're going to also, they're cognizant of the environmental stuff and they're going to help there too. But the amount of energy and effort it took to make the whole thing work, to make one machine do what they claimed, it required real, incredible brilliance. That brilliance is not 
commoditized yet. I mean, you know, AGI is coming, right? Yeah, yeah, so, there we go, right? <laughs> we're all dead. Very much. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. But what's your favorite snack? These days, I'm trying to be disciplined. And so my favorite snack is turning into rice crackers. You know, I have the Eastern European problem where if you put salt in front of me and sugar, I would live off of that. I've come to realize not a sustainable, good diet that no, nobody really approves of those things. So I'm trying to get off of those. So cinnamon rice cakes with almond butter and slices of berry and blueberries. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm doing with the almond butter. I, I like that. I really like that. <laughs> it's, it's one that I've enjoyed. But Dan, thank you so much. This was very fun. Jomo is, is a good one here. We also just have a ton of insights, I think, for founders to listen and learn from, from the earliest stages to running a public company. So I think it's going to be a thing that a lot of people are very excited to listen to. So thank you so much for coming on. How can people find you if they'd like to get in touch? I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm on Twitter. Contact me on LinkedIn. Really, I'm looking at enterprise companies, right? So if you are a consumer founder or in healthcare or in Bitcoin, I'm not your guy. I get a lot of those. I, I'm not equipped. I'm one person. I'm not equipped to handle that. But look, if you're in the core enterprise, security, infra, please drop me a note and send me a note. And I respond to cold stuff on LinkedIn all the time. And I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. And so happy to, to chat. And honestly, Shomik, you've asked great questions. And it's been my honor to be here with you. And if this is any indication of your quality as a VC, Bolt Start is lucky to have you. <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. I've been enjoying your Twitter has been, I think, getting a little bit feistier recently. And so I've been I've been enjoying that as well. No, that's Sorry. been it's it's been amazing. You know, the funny thing is now with your success, like you don't have much that you need to be worried about anymore. And so I think that's a pretty cool thing to see. So let me close on this. The only place that people have commented on my Twitter is in the grocery store. And it's so bizarre. I go to the salad bar. You know, again, trying to stay healthy. And people come and say, oh, I saw this tweet about this, right? <laughs> I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Introduce yourself. And why? Why? Why at this moment is I'm, you know, putting together my salad? Do I? But anyway, yeah, it's very bizarre. I'm trying <laughs> to be more open. And when I started, I was just telling jokes to myself. And then that didn't scale particularly well, shockingly. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to try and be more useful to founders and, and use this as a marketing tool. Okay, now I've gotten fired up about San Francisco, which I love, and I want to see if I can, in my own way, help help correct some of the madness. It's crazy, unfortunately. But yeah. Dan, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you.